Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's County Championship Review Show is none other than a good friend of mine, co-host of the podcast, and also Essex County Cricket Club's media officer, Mr. Matt Wiley. So Matt, first things first, mate, thank you ever so much for joining me here on the podcast today. It's always a pleasure to get you on for a chat about all things county crickets. I've got to ask, mate, how's your day been so far? Hello, mate. Yeah, uh, damp, hasn't it, really, unfortunately. I'm sat, well, back home for the weekend, but sat about 25 miles from Old Trafford and just hoping that it will stop raining. But I don't think it will, unfortunately. So we'll see what happens. But uh, other than that, all good. All good weekend. Got my graduation on Tuesday. That's something very nice to look forward to. But uh, for now, we'll uh, look back on the past week, shall we? Well, yes, we shall. And it's been a very interesting week, hasn't it, to be honest? As you mentioned, it has been a bit damp. It's been a bit wet, a bit windy at times as well here in the Midlands. But we did actually get four results in the first division of the 2023 LV County Championship. And just for those who aren't aware, this is our Division 1 review show. The Division 2 show will be out in due course. I did that episode with Kieran, so keep an eye out for that on our social media channels and on the website. But Matt, I just say that we get straight in to our conversation about the first division this week because even though pretty much all of the games were rain affected the standard of cricket that we're witnessing in division one this season is absolutely remarkable and one of the front runners that I feel like we just had to talk about to kickstart today's show are Essex because Essex beat Kent by seven wickets in a rather one-sided affair at the Cloud County ground in Chelmsford now Ken won the toss and chose to have a bat first in this game. And right from the get-go, Mats, I wanted to ask you about this decision because looking at the rest of the games, overcast conditions, gloomy conditions, very nice for the bowlers, in particular Essex. You look at the likes of Jamie Porter and Sam Cook, to name but a couple. What did you make of Kent's decision to win the toss and have a bat first? Yeah, it was a bit unexpected. We were all quite surprised when it happened, but we kind of settled on the thought that they were just trying to unsettle Essex a little bit because Essex is such a bat-first team. They've got kind of that almost hardwired into the into the makeup this season so far. That was the only reason we could think of that they wanted to sort of just try something a bit different, I guess. And because they were already going to be the, the underdog going into this game, I think that it was more just them trying something a bit different because... They, they thought if they could put Essex on the back foot straight away and do something a bit unexpected, then it might be that was their route into equaling the prospects a little bit in the game. Obviously, it didn't quite turn out that way. But yeah, we were uh, a bit of a loss to explain it as well, given the clouds, like you said, and uh, and the conditions and the Essex bowlers. Yeah, it was, a, it was an odd one. It was, but I suppose they were trying something a little bit outside of the box, weren't they? It was a courageous decision, but unfortunately for Kent fans... It didn't really pay off, did it, in Chelmsford this week because the visitors were dismissed for a lowly total of 207 runs after just 59 overs on day one as the likes of Sam Cook and Jamie Porter just feasted with that Duke's ball back in hand. And in reply to this, Essex well and truly laid down the hammer heading into play on day two as the informed Matt Critchley, someone who we'll probably discuss in due course, Matt, and the ever-reliable duo of Harmer and Sir Alistair Cook tore into the Kent bowlers with an unrelenting salvo of fours and sixes to ultimately propel the confident hosts up to an enormous first innings total 
and 458 for eight declared on day two. Now, to their credit, Kent did put up a more resilient showing with the bats on the second time of asking, as classy number three batter Harry Finch laid down the anchor and grafted away alongside Joey Everson to bring up his fifth career first-class century and subsequently see his side up to a much-improved score of 265 for seven by stumps on day three. However, with the threats of poor weather closing in on day four, Essex yet again showed their immense title credentials taking the final three Kent wickets in quick succession before smashing a rapid 30 runs over the course of just 3.5 chaotic overs to ultimately seal a sensational seven-wicket victory within the opening exchanges of the morning session at the Cloud County ground. So, Matts, we've got to talk, first and foremost, about Essex. Because, let's face it, this is a very good team, isn't it? And it's a team which are beginning to really display their title credentials in this year's championship. So right off the bat, this is a massive question. But given their remaining fixtures, yes, they've got two games against Hampshire and they will be ridiculously difficult. But are Essex the new favourites for the title in Division 1? So I'll make it very clear that I'm not talking on behalf of the club at the moment, just in case anybody wants to take my words that I might be, uh, I'm not, this is my opinion. No, not yet. Um, Sully are still leaders, Sully are still your favourite. Yeah, I think there's more to be done. You need to reel Sully in. Um, it's a real shame that there's not going to be any sort of potential decider where I think actually plays Sully. But the one thing I would say about the fixtures is, well, they're both very similar, aren't they? You know, Sully have got to play, the last two games are reversed. You know, we play Hampshire and then Northampton. They play Northampton and then Hampshire. And it's a, it's a very select group of teams that are going to have the impact on where the title goes. But I think because of that, Surrey is still the favourite. Because I think that if there was a bit more, oh, they've, so we've got to play Team A, we've got to play Team B, there's a lot more variables at play and a lot more opportunities for points to be dropped and points to be gained. I think when you're dealing with the same team, there's a lot less chance of that. I just feel like there's a, there's a lot less chance of that. The one thing that I am quite happy about is playing Hampshire, playing Hampshire away at this time of year and not late in September like Sully have got to do because that will be difficult. You know, you've got Abbott and Abbas going at them in late September on a green top. That is really, really tough, even for the power that Surrey have got. So that is potentially a bit of an advantage. But, you know, like you said, we've got to play them twice. We've got to play them, even if we've got to play them at home, we've still got to play them in September. It's, we're going to get the same treatment, maybe not quite to the same extent, but we're going to get the same treatment. So, yeah, it's going to be close, I think, but... Something something big will have to happen for Surrey to drop the points and for us to make up the difference, I think. And that is, I think, where my slight doubt lies. Well, that's fair enough. But to be honest, Matt, so I'm starting to think a bit differently. And to be honest, if you would have said that question, or if I would have said that question four or five rounds ago, it looked as though Surrey were going to walk to the title. A lot of people completely discounted the likes of Essex, Hampshire and even Warwickshire. Fast forward to the 11th round and all of a sudden it's a four-horse race. I'd agree that Essex are probably 
the front runners in terms of the chasing pack, but you can't discount Hampshire or Warwickshire given that game in hand. So all of a sudden, the title race has been blown wide open. Would you not even put Somerset in there as well? It's an interesting one with Somerset, to be honest, because again, they're finding momentum at the right time. But I feel like if they had a game in hand, yes, but they are very, very far behind. What is it? 39 points, I believe. They are behind Surrey. It would take something absolutely mega. They'd be relying on other results. But I think for Somerset, we'll get onto this when we talk about the, the West Country outfits. Again, maybe, maybe dark horses, but I personally think that 2023 is a bridge too far. Now that I've said that, they'll probably win the thing for the first time in their history. But yeah, I do think they've got a bit too much to, to gain, to be honest, on, on the likes of Surrey and Essex. But just going back on track to Essex County Cricket Club, I actually see them as the favourites now because, as I mentioned, historically they've done well against Hampshire in Red Bull Cricket. They've got that game against North Ants as well, who are struggling at this point in the season. And you just look at the stats, and obviously long-term listeners will know how much I love my stats, but they've been absolutely phenomenal this season. So you've got the second leading run scorer in the entire division in Tom Wesley, scored 900 runs at 52.94. Then you've got Dan Lawrence, he scored 657 runs. Sir Alistair Cook has scored 658. And then Matt Critchley, I mentioned him beforehand, what a signing this guy's been for Essex County Cricket Club. And this season really has been, I wouldn't say a breakthrough because he showed this potential at times last season, but I feel like this is the year that Matt Critchley has properly asserted himself as the main guy in that Essex middle order because last season they struggled for runs in that department. And he's been brilliant, hasn't he? 739 runs, averaging 43.47, 200s, 550s to his name. I think Matt Critchley has been absolutely exceptional. And that's just the batting. That's just one facet of this Essex team. We go into the, the business end of the summer. There's nobody better than Simon Harmer, is there? Let's face it, the guy's been absolutely unbelievable for Essex. What was it 400 first-class wickets for the county since joining in 2017? That is absolutely ludicrous, to be honest. So you've got him. He's taken 41 wickets so far this season, third-leading wicket-taker in the entire competition. And then you've got Sam Cook and Jamie Porter, each of whom have taken 37 wickets apiece. So I see Essex as the favourites now. I know that's a bold thing to say, but I can see Surrey slipping up. And that game that I see them slipping up in is against Warwickshire at the Oval. I think if Warwickshire win this week and have something to play for, that could be where they drop points. But again, we'll get onto that conversation once we get to it. But Matt, we, we've spoken primarily there about Essex. Just a quick word on Kent. Can they survive? looking at this stage of the season, given the lack of, of Daniel Bell Drummond, he's injured, Sam Billings has taken time away from the game. They've got a number of injuries and key players missing. Do you think Kent have got enough in the tank to survive the drop this season? Well, yeah, it's going to be very difficult, isn't it? It's like I've always said, it's, it's a, such a weird situation that you've got where you can finish nine and get relegated. It's like, you know, because it's such a small division, you know, you talk about ninth in, in other sports, in football, for example, and, you know, you're in, you're in a battle for European players, you're in a battle for the playoffs or something like that in football, whereas in cricket, you're second from bottom because you've got a situation where there's such a small division. You've got to be at the very top of your game and they've not been at the very top of the game, have they? Because you mentioned, obviously, a lot of factors out of their control, a lot of injuries, play key players, being unavailable for different reasons. It's not been for lack of effort. It's not been for lack of ability. 
but sometimes you know that's the nature of elite sport isn't it it's so uncompromising and it comes at you so fast and you've got to you know get get on a get in a decent rhythm or it will you know you will you will be found out and if you're lacking and ken are lacking aren't they so the belief down there will obviously be yes of course we can stay up until we mathematically can't but they're gonna have to benefit from other teams being worse aren't they you know at the moment they're just about in the driving seat in terms of the relegation battle they're not actually in the drop zone at the moment and there's two teams that are potentially on paper or certainly so far this season had worse seasons so i think they'll still retain an element of belief but yeah they're going to need at least one win aren't they they're going to want to put some breathing breathing space between themselves and middlesex and you would have to i think if you can all middlesex at this point you're hoping that north get cut adrift because obviously that then minimizes your own chances of going down if essentially one team's already relegated and then there's a scrap over only one place so yeah it's short answer yes i think can can still stay up but that's only me saying yes i think they can not i think they win it's an interesting one isn't it with kent's yeah. because again if they do get the players back you probably back them, given the calibre of the guys that they will have coming back into the starting eleven. But yeah, it's it's getting dangerously close now, isn't it, for the White Horse of Kent, and they will be in a relegation scrap. So talking of the relegation battle, Matt, that brings us beautifully onto our next game, which actually was the London Derby. Let's turn our attention to Lords, where Surrey beat Middlesex by eight wickets at the home of Crickets. Now, Middlesex won the toss and decided to have a bowl first in overcast conditions at the home of crickets, a choice which unfortunately backfired rather spectacularly for the Saxes in the opening exchanges, as the ever-impressive Jamie Smith, ably supported by Rory Burns and Jordan Clark, racked up a stylish 138 from 194 deliveries to propel the visitors up to a huge total of 433 all-outs by the conclusion of their first innings. Now, in response to this brutal batting display from their cross-river rivals, Middlesex failed to generate any sort of momentum with the bat in hand this week. And although a resilient 116-run stand between Max Holden and John Simpson in the first innings, as well as a dashing 72, courtesy of Captain Mark Stoneman in the second, did spare the home side's blushes by preventing an innings defeat. Unsurprisingly, totals of 238 and 272 runs were simply not enough to prevent Surrey from taking home the spoils, as the brilliant Brown Caps chased down their target of 78 runs with ease on the fourth and final day's play to seal a thumping victory with eight wickets still to spare. So, Matt, I think it's safe to say the London derby, unfortunately, was quite a one-sided affair. Surrey were dominant, basically, from ball one. So, we've got to talk, first and foremost, about the Brown Caps, and one player in particular who myself and Kieran mentioned so often on this podcast, Jamie Smith. Jamie Smith, Matt, if you could, a few words on that incredible knock from the Surrey wicketkeeper batter. Just how impressive was that from Surrey's Jamie Smith? Really, really impressive, yeah. To to go to, I, I suppose, yes, Surrey were the massive favourites in this game, but there's still an element of pressure attached to it. You're going to Lords, you're playing against your rivals, there's all those kind of intangible associated with it so you've got to have 
you're going to have your technique put to put to the test, and he came through that test incredibly well, didn't he? He's scoring very very well on both sides of the wicket, all around the ground. Um, in particular, you know, they're sort of shot through cover and through mid wicket. He's quite a quite a classy player, isn't he? Um, not quite as you know square as Alistair Cook, for example, but just in that sort of gap between truly straight and and square. And you know they're they're good area to be able to score in because it's marked you out, doesn't it? As you know, any any sort of cover drive has the purest purring, as you might say. So the ability to kind of do that stands it, it makes you stand out in cricket, doesn't it? You know, we talk about players that have got a really good cover drive in their armoury, and when you talk about that, you talk about legends of the game like Coley, Bell, um, Babarazam. You know, there's just some really really big names. So we're not saying he's there yet, but the ability to do that, I think, sets him on that path. So, yeah, he's still only young. He's got plenty of time. Uh, he's another off the superb Surrey production line they've got going. And, yeah, he's the fact that he, he's one of those players that can do it all as well, isn't he? You know, can score at this rate. He can score 138 without being out in a championship game. And then I remember a couple of years ago at Guildford, just seeing him gently lofting the ball into all parts of southwest Surrey. At Woodbridge Road, and he's in a in a one day cup game. So yeah, he's he's a heck of a player, and just that fact that he's got those shots in his armour really means he's one that's got to be watched out for definitely. He certainly has, Matt. And to be honest, myself and Kieran have mentioned this a lot of times here on this podcast, but he's got England written all over him, hasn't he? He's a very good keeper. I know, obviously, Ben Folks is the starting keeper. Took some great grabs as well. In the London derby this week, in particular the one down the leg side, just flinging himself to his right. Exceptional take from, in my opinion, one of the world's best keepers, probably should be in the England team now. But you look at Jamie Smith's output for Surrey this year, 625 runs at 41.66, strike rate of 62.62, two centuries to his name, three half centuries as well. He is the club's leading run scorer in the county championship. So Jamie Smith, we could talk about him all episode long. I think he's a wonderful talent. He's got a very high ceiling. And as I said, I think there's an international cricketer in the form of Jamie Smith. But aside from Surrey's batting, Matt, talking of the art of batting, we do have to talk about Middlesex because, yes, again, they struggled immensely in this game, didn't they? I mean, look at the first innings, 238 runs from 85.1 overs. I did allude to that 116-run stand between Max Holden. He scored 55 and John Simpson, who chipped in with 60 from 133 deliveries. But how do Middlesex counteract this this struggle this season? Because we, we seem to mention it every single episode, but they've got two batting bonus points over the course of nine matches. What can they do, in your opinion, to get out of this rut? Do they need a personnel change? Do you think they need to change the, the order, the balance of that starting eleven? How on earth do Middlesex get out of this batting rut? Um, yeah, it's a really, really difficult one, isn't it? Um, and I think the problem that they've got as well is the fact that they've not got many opportunities to experiment, have they? Because you talk about a change of a, changing the balance of the team, maybe swapping the order around a little bit, changing personnel. Well, if you do each of those things, I mean, you can do them all in one game, or you can do each of those things in one remaining game well they've only got four remaining games so it's you know and they need points now they, 
don't really have time to be experimenting, do they? It's a really difficult one. Um, yeah, I think it's just a case of trying to somehow restore that confidence and trying to, you know, they have players that are good enough. You know, Mark Stoneman's played for England, Sam Robson's played for England, Max Holden, I think in the past, has been earmarked as somebody who's good enough for England. Uh, Peter Milan is probably international quality. It's not a, on paper, it's not a weak lineup. I think it's just the mental state that somehow deserted them. And I think that is where the coach is going to earn the money now because they've got to somehow restore that belief in that batting lineup. But like I said, that is going to be a lot easier said than done because they've only got four games in which to do it and so far they've had 10 games in which they haven't done it so it's a tough ask from here definitely it really is maths and it doesn't get any easier does it to be honest because given those last few games two of them are against warwickshire they've got a game against essex as well in chelmsford they've got a game up at old trafford's against lancashire i really do worry for middlesex county cricket club and to be honest i don't think there's an immediate fix. I do really feel sorry in particular for Peter Milan because he's not had a good season at all. Eight matches, 221 runs, averaging 14.73. But I suppose he's the overseas player. Are they going to drop him? That's the question at this stage of the season. And then in terms of potential replacements, potentially they could put Robbie White in there. That's the only change that I could maybe see Middlesex making. But it just seems to me at the moment they don't have the right balance in the lineup. I think the middle order is actually fine. I quite like that that trio of Max Holden, John Simpson and Ryan Higgins. And actually, the stats and the averages do back that up because those three have got three of the higher averages on this Saxes team. But just looking at those averages in comparison to Surrey, Middlesex have got a single player averaging over 40 in this year's county championship, which in a high-scoring, highly competitive division, really has been the downfall of the London outfit. So it's going to be tough. I've got to say, I think on paper, to be honest, Middlesex might be the second team which go down. Obviously, we could be proven wrong, and I sincerely hope that they can string together some good performances heading into the latter stage of the season. But yeah, just looking at the fixtures, as I said, two games against the Bears, a game against Langs at Old Trafford, a game against Essex at Chelmsford. With these teams potentially vying for the title, it will be very, very difficult for the Saxes to try and salvage their place in the first division. But talking of that relegation battle, let's turn our attention slightly further north. Let's go to Trent Bridge, Mats, where Hampshire beat Nottinghamshire by 116 runs. And right off the bat, Mats, I just wanted to get your opinion on this before we get into the, the game summary, because I saw this on social media, are not in danger of relegation. Because if we have a look at their trajectory at this stage of the season, again, they haven't been getting wins, have they? And it's basically been a case of, well, Middlesex and Kent also haven't been winning. And that's why Notts continue to stay in that seventh place in the table. But are you slightly worried for the East Midlands outfit? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. Um, I think they'll probably be okay because they're a team below them that are in a worse situation than they are. But yeah, it's a really bad time of the season to start depending on other teams losing and start sort of clipping away yourself, isn't it? So, yeah, they're, they're in trouble, I think. Um, I don't think they will go down, but they're certainly closer to the drop zone than they want to be. I'd agree with that, to be honest, Matt. I don't think they are favourites to go down. As I said, I think at this stage of the season, 
unfortunately, and I take absolutely no pleasure in saying this, but I do think it'll be Northampton Middlesex. Would love to be proven wrong, though, to be completely honest. But again, for Notts, things just aren't clicking. I'm not entirely sure what it is because they've actually got the, the division's leading wicket-taker in the form of Brett Hutton. But for a team which historically has been very strong with the bat in hand, they do seem to have been suffering quite a few collapses in the Championship this season. But talking of this game in particular, let's give you the summary. So, Notts won the toss and elected to have a bowl first in this encounter, given the overcast conditions. Absolutely no surprise whatsoever. And to be honest, this decision seems to have paid off marvellously in the early exchanges, as the clinical seam trio of Lyndon James, Brett Hutton and Dane Patterson carved through the Hampshire batting lineup within the space of just 49 overs to leave the shell shock visitors all out for a meagre total of 166 runs. However, in what proved to be a rather surprising twist, Nottinghamshire themselves had an absolute shocker with the bat in hand during their first innings, as a fired-up Ian Holland spearheaded a sensational seam bowling display from the Rosen crown, which saw the visitors bowl out knots for a paltry total of 100 runs within the space of 37.5 overs. Now, by this point in the game, the tide of this clash had well and truly turned. And Matt, the man behind this change, was a certain Ian Holland. Now, as soon as he started giving it a bash, and he started giving it a whack and sending the ball to the boundary all over the place, it seemed, at Trent Bridge this week, you sent me a message, didn't you? Basically telling me how impressed you were. You did it in a meme format, if I'm not mistaken, mate. So... Who better to to detail this knock? What did you make of that stunning century courtesy of the Hampshire opener in Nottingham this week? Yeah, it was fantastic. And I'm really pleased for him because obviously he's not had the best season with the bat so far. Has he been almost tried to they've tried to move him around in the order to try and get his form back a little bit? You know, he'd lock you up in a place with the emergence of Fletcher Middleton. And yeah, I am I'm really happy for him. Um the one thing I would say, actually, just before I come on to this knock, is that obviously he slightly got a little bit of form back by playing in the twos last week, and that was against Essex. So, you know, we've all got to uh, play our part in it, haven't we? Just uh, build build his confidence back a little bit. But uh, no, it's it's a really it's a really really good knock, you know, to underpin the innings and to hold it together, kind of really effectively, like he did. You know, the role of the opener is essentially to do that it's to make sure that you can be the glue that kind of pulls everything together and make sure that you're, you're the one that's constantly there forming the partnership and making sure that everybody kind of support you support everybody every other member of the team and they come in to support you so he played his role really really well and fair play to him you know he's and that's all I can say, really. His, 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 his talent isn't in doubt. His form has been patchy, but he's hit back. And it's it's one of those pitches at Trent Bridge, isn't it, where it potentially gets a little bit easier to bat on. So I guess it was a good opportunity after getting a duck in the first inning to think, no, that's not going to define this match. I'm going to go out. This pitch has potentially become... A little bit more in my favour, and he certainly did, didn't he? You know, he even got a uh, a six out at one point as well, didn't he? Just uh, gently floating it over point. So, yeah, it's uh, it was a really good inning, and uh, it contributed massively to 
absolutely win. Well, it did. It was the knock, wasn't it? We talk about that sometimes in crickets, about game-defining innings, and this was that particular innings from Ian Holland, 138 not out, which included 17 fours and that aforementioned six as well. It was an absolutely superb innings from the Australian opener this week. But in addition to that 138, Liam Dawson scoring a blistering 82 from 111 balls. And how about James Fuller? coming out there, 52 not out from 42 deliveries to ultimately almost flip the, the script of this game completely on its head and taking Hampshire up to a far better second in his total of 344 for five declared. Now, with a mammoth target of 411 runs to chase down in the fourth and final innings of this game, Joe Clark and Tom Moores did give the Knotts fans in attendance at Trent Bridge a slight glimmer of hope in this encounter with counter-attacking knots of 67 and 81 respectively. But by this point, the game had already slipped out of the grasp of the home side, as the aforementioned Fuller and the ever-reliable Mohamed Abbas sigh through the remnants of the Nottinghamshire batting unit with clinical ease to secure an invaluable 116-run victory for their side on the third day play in Nottingham. So, for Hampshire, this was a mega-performance. James Vince in the, in the post-match interview, was absolutely elated, and for good reason as well, because this keeps them in and around the mix for the title. So, Matt, a bit like with the question about Essex, are Hampshire outsiders for the title? Because, in theory, if they are to get two results against Essex, given the fact that Surrey do play the Bears in that potential banana peel on the 3rd of September, they could still win it, couldn't they? Yeah, they definitely could, and in contrast to the fact that obviously I've kind of bemoaned the lack of a title decided between Surrey and Essex, we're not going to see those two play each other again this season. Hampshire have got to play all their rivals, so it's all very much in their own hands. You know, two against Essex, one against Surrey. It's very much in with a chance. You know, they have a chance to directly. They're they're not you know looking on and hoping that the rivals lose points. They're going to be hoping that they can be the ones to take those points. So. Yeah, you talk about six pointer in football. What's the equivalent? Thirty-two pointer in uh, in the county championship. It's yeah. Um, you'd have to say that it's it kind of weird in that I don't think they I don't think they will win it, but they've got more chance of being able to influence it almost than Surrey or Essex have because because of the fact that they play their rivals and in the case of Essex they play them twice you know they could take a bucket load of points off Essex if they come off in both those games so I hope that didn't happen I should point that out but it's possible so yeah I, I see absolutely no reason why Hampshire couldn't be in the mix right through to the end of the season. Well I think they will be and to be honest the the reason why I believe that is because they're a team which always goes for the win And yes, that is to their detriment at times. And that is why they also lose more games in comparison to other teams at the top. But it's almost that living and dying by the sword, isn't it? And for Hampshire, that is with the bat. Because when the batting comes to the forefront, they win the majority of the games with the likes of Abbott, Abbas, Fuller, Barker, Holland, Dawson in that bowling lineup. That's a good enough bowling attack to win the county championship. But they've got to have runs on the board. And to be honest, after that first innings, I actually thought Notts would win this game, but they completely flipped it on its head. They played the Uno reverse card quite exceptionally. And in the end, that second innings in particular from Ian Holland got them to the win. So that's why I think Hampshire are definitely in this. They're a team which has absolutely no fear. They've got a lot of courage. They always go for the win. 
and they will massively influence it. Whether or not they, they win games and they go on to lift the title, that's another question. But I think the key there, Matt, is those two games against Essex. If they win both of them, they're in this, aren't they? They really are. So we'll have to keep tabs on the Rose and Crown of Hampshire. But yeah, exciting times at the top of the table. But aside from the top, because we mentioned there the likes of, of Surrey, we've mentioned the likes of Essex and, of course, Hampshire County Cricket Club. Let's just take a step back to the to the lower ends of the table just for a second, Matt. And let's talk about North Ants, because North Ants, unfortunately, do look as though they're probably going to be the first team confirmed to be in Division 2 next season because, yeah, the Tudor Rose lost to Somerset by nine wickets at Wantage Road and North Ants won the toss and opted to have a bowl first in this game. But unfortunately, this appeared to have backfired somewhat in the early exchanges as Sean Dixon and the Somerset Middle Order applied themselves adeptly in tough conditions and accumulated runs at a decent click to ultimately take their side up to more than respectable total of 351 all out by the conclusion of their innings. Now, in response to this, Northamptonshire opener Ricardo Vasconcelos did try valiantly to generate some desperately needed momentum for his side with a quickfire 78 at the top of the innings. But as has been the case on far too many occasions for the home side this summer, this not proved in many ways to be a lone hand, as the Somerset seam attack led by Craig Overton and Matt Henry sigh through the rest of the batting order with complete and utter ease to leave the host all out from meagre total of 180 runs. Now, with a lead of 171 runs to his name, Somerset captain Tom Abel unsurprisingly decided to enforce the follow-on. And although his opposite number, Luke Proctor, did provide some valuable resistance for Northants with a classy 87, the home side's eventual total of 224 all-out was simply never going to be enough to salvage this game, as their West Country opposition chased down their target of 56 runs within the space of just 10.4 overs to wrap up an emphatic nine-wicket victory on just the third day's play in Northampton. So, Matt, right from the get-go, we've got to talk about Northampton's batting, because yet again, we spoke about Middlesex earlier, but for Northampton, it's been even worse, hasn't it? Let's face it, one batting bonus point all season long. Again, where the Northampton go from here? Because I'm looking at the table, and we'll talk about the table in due course, but they're already 15 points adrift of Middlesex and 26 points adrift of Kent in the safety position of eighth place. So what on earth can North Ants do from this position to try and rescue their situation in the first division? Uh, Raf, Ricardo, Vasconcelos and Cotton Wool and hope that he can double what he's been doing so far. Um yeah, he's it, it's kind of difficult because they're clearly one of those teams that when you put them under a bit of pressure, they seem to crack, don't they? They seem to fold and it's like wherever they've been, not, they've not even had any real element of home advantage either. They seem to, wherever they are, at home, away, wherever it is, it just seems to be poor all over the place and it's never a healthy position to be in. In cricket, is it the fact that your batting is weak to the point that your bowlers are having to bail you out? And I mean, in the case of North Ants, that's happening almost every round, isn't it? It's, it's a really, really tough one because you know they 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 survived well last season, didn't they? They they are capable of competing at this level. There's not been too much change or too much difference 
from last season. It's just that the, the division is so uber competitive that it's incredibly difficult to kind of keep up if you're even a little bit lesser, you know, if you're even a little bit below where you should be, then you, you, you're done really, aren't you? It's really difficult. So all I would say is they, they do need to hope that, you know, that I was only half joking with the Vasco Salas comment, they do need to hope that he carries on. But they can, yeah, I think at this point, you've just got, you've, they've got to take advantage of that game in hand over Kent. But that is just about the only thing that's within their control. I think the rest of it is cautious thinking and hope, to be quite honest, because it's going to be a difficult running for them, definitely. It really is. And again, I mentioned this about Middlesex. Middlesex have got such a difficult run-in. You mentioned North Ansi's game in hands. It's against Warwickshire, who again, by that point, could well and truly be in the mix for the title if they do beat Surrey. So again, it's going to be so difficult for North Ansi to survive the drop. And I do mention the batting in particular because, again, I just look at the averages. They've got four players averaging over 30 and then nobody else. Every other player in that North Ants lineup is averaging under 21, which just isn't enough, is it, in the first division when you've got teams like Surrey who pile on at least 350 runs every single week. You look at the likes of, of Essex as well with those strong top order runs, and that's why those teams are towards the upper echelons of the first division, and that's why unfortunately North Ants are occupying the, well, the bottom place in the first division because I look at the bowling, the bowling actually hasn't been too bad this season. Yes, 23 bowling points is the lowest in the division, but at least it's a bit more comparative to other teams. And Jack White in this game, to be honest, was actually very, very impressive. Five for 77. He took his second career five-wicket haul against Somerset in this particular game. So they've got the bowling capabilities to really challenge for safety. But I mentioned this earlier with Middlesex. It's all well and good having a, a solid and reliable bowling attack. But if you're putting on less than 250 runs per innings, you're not going to win games of cricket in a division which is this competitive. So I've heard talks through the grapevine, mostly from Crick Info, that Northants are set to sign Pritvi Shaw, which would be a very good signing, to be completely honest. We talk about top-order runs. Pritvi, Indian opener, international quality bats, would definitely provide that for the Tudor Rose. But... Yeah, I do really, really worry about Northants, to be completely honest. And yeah, I do think that if they lose this week, I think that we've probably got our first team confirmed for relegation in Division 1 this season, which pains me to say, because I really do like Northamptonshire County Cricket Club. But again, it's a brutal division, and this just proves proves why. You know, you've got a team which does have players good enough for the first division, but as a batting lineup, it's just not come to, to the forefront this season. But... Talking of Somersets on the flip side of this, Matt, we had that conversation earlier, didn't we, about the, the West Country outfits and their position in the table. Because you said they're potential outsiders for the title. And to be honest, looking at the points table, 122 points, they are still a lot of points behind Surrey. But again, the, the teams above them do play each other. So who knows? A few draws and a few wins for Somerset, they're right back in the mix. But if we just fast forward to September, Matt's, where do you think Somerset would be happy finishing? Given the fact that they had such a poor start, what do you think would be a good position for the West Country outfits come the end of the 2023 season? I think fourth or above would be a, something that they can be happy with. I mean, that's, you know, 
clear top half, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think, like you said, considering the fourth start they had, they were, I don't think they were in any serious, prolonged danger of relegation where they but top half is, there's always something to be said for that, you know, teams strive for that, it puts you, you know, in above average, basically, doesn't it? It says you've had an above average season, that's what it means. So, yeah, I think that would be, you know, the like, like I said, again, they're, they're not going to stop fighting for a potential top three or top two or even title until it's absolutely confirmed they can't get there anymore. But I think they can be happy with a top four finish, definitely. I'd concur with that, to be honest, Matt. I think top four would be excellent for Somerset, to be honest. And a major component behind this rise for the West Country outfit is Matt Henry. Matt Henry could be one of the signings of the entire summer. He had such a good T20 Blast campaign, a vital cog in the Wyverns' eventual victory in that competition. But even in the Championship, five matches, 26 wickets, averaging 16.84. He gets the ball talk and he gets lateral movement. He gets late swing. He's an absolute weapon with that Duke's ball in hand. So Matt Henry, take a bow. I thought he bowled phenomenally well in Northampton this week. And again, he has been a major pillar behind Somerset's recent success in both reds and white ball cricket. So, yeah, I think top four, that would do Somerset, to be completely honest. I think they've got the capabilities. Obviously, they've got the breakthrough star of the division in James Rue, who scored 974 runs at 69.57. But even aside from Rue, you know, you've got contributions from Tom Abel. He scored 503 runs. Tom Cola-Cadmore. 519. Tom Lamanby scoring 470. And I think the real key one for me this week, Matt, was Sean Dixon, because Sean Dixon has had such a difficult campaign in the county championship. A lot of people calling him, calling for him to be dropped from that starting 11. But he had that knock on finals day, didn't he? And all of a sudden, the confidence is back. He's in his groove. He's got his mojo. And that was an excellent 70 in that first inning. So full credit as well to Sean Dixon. Picked up from where he left off of in the T20 Blast campaign. And yeah, it was certainly to Somerset's advantage. A big, big win for the West Country outfits, which does consolidate their position in the mid-table. So we'll have to wait and see how they got on for the rest of the summer. But Matt, aside then from that encounter between Somerset's and North Ants, at Wantage Road, let's turn our attention to the fifth and final game in the first division this week, which saw Warwickshire and Lancashire play out a massively rain-affected draw at Edgbaston. Now, Warwickshire won the toss and elected to have a bowl first in this game, a decision which for the most part appeared to have paid off magnificently during the first 52 overs of this match, as some disciplined bowling from the likes of Oliver Hannon dorby Ed Barnard and Danny Briggs quickly reduced the Red Rose to a perilous score of 150 for 7. After this initial wobble, however, the momentum soon began to swing massively in Lancashire's favour, as a pivotal 145-run 8th wicket stand between George Borderson and Tom Bailey, both of whom scored career bests in this game, ultimately helped propel the Red Rose up to a far more competitive total of 327 all-outs by the conclusion of their first innings. And Matt, before we get into the rest of this game, the final two innings, which did take place in a very wet and, and as I said, sometimes windy Birmingham this week, we've got to talk about that eighth wicket stand between George Balderson and Tom Bailey, because I was watching that, and to be completely honest, as a Bears fan, I was gutted. 
because I thought we could have gone on to win that game given the poor weather. If we could have just bowled Lancashire out for less than 220 runs, those would have been some massive points. It could have been 16 invaluable points, but as proved to be the case, the Bears just couldn't get the job done on home soil this week. But a few words, if you could, mates, on that mammoth stand between Bailey and Balderson. That was crucial, wasn't it, in order for Lancashire to, to salvage the draw in this particular game? Absolutely crucial. Yeah, they were flailing, weren't they? They uh, in danger of not getting any batting bonus points. It was, yeah, they, they were. And, you know, when you get bowled out quickly like that, it dents your confidence. You've not got very many ones to play with. You can't take a risk in terms of picking it up when you're bowling and trying to be a bit more aggressive with your fields or be a bit more aggressive with your deliveries. You've got far less scope to do all of that. But the massively crucial importance of a lower order partnership, it, it, it really can't be understated. You know, the, it, it provides that lift to the team batting. It gives your um, some of your other tail enders who were potentially expecting to bat a bit sooner and have to bat for a bit longer. It gives them a bit more of a rest period, so they're a bit fresher when they when they come to to bowl, which is their main job. And it deflates your opposition as well. You know, there's nothing worse, is there, than a big partnership where there shouldn't be a big partnership, if you know what I'm saying. Like if when it happens for the eighth wicket, when you're only three away from knocking a team over, that's when it really becomes you know, you you, you sort of you don't know where to turn, you don't know you don't know what to look, you know. I think we saw that in its purest form at Old Trafford when in that partnership between Jimmy Anderson and Johnny Burstow, where for those sort of what was it, seven, eight, nine overs, that, that last wicket partnership, the, the Australia just didn't know what to do or where to go. They were absolutely dazed in it. That's obviously a far more extreme example, but it, it really does get you down to seeing a lower order partnership like that and from hoping that you could knock a team over for 175, suddenly you barely got rid of them for 327. And it's, uh, it changes the dynamic of the game. It really does. It did. And yeah, to be honest, as I said, the inner Warwickshire fan, which to be honest, probably isn't an inner Warwickshire fan. I do make it very clear when it comes to my allegiances in county cricket. But I was gutted on one hand. But on the other, you know what? I was actually quite impressed and very happy for George Balderson in particular because I think he's got very high ceiling. I think Lancashire have been a bit harsh when it comes to not playing him, actually, at times in these last three seasons, because he just oozes class. And one thing that I love about Balderson is his play of spin. He actually utilises his crease. He uses his footwork to his advantage, and that's something so important against the spin bowlers. He didn't allow Danny Briggs, for example, to get into rhythm. So, again, shout out to George Balderson. I think that was an exceptional ton, and it was the first of his career. So. Even though it was at the the cost of Warwickshire in the long run, it was a very good individual moment for for George Balderson. So, yeah, you have to give credit where credit is due. And Tom Bailey as well, career best 75 for the Lancashire tail ender. So, again, an excellent partnership. And to be honest, by that point, Warwickshire probably were not favourites to go on and win this game. And as if that partnership wasn't bad enough, the Bears then struggled massively with the bat in hand, scoring just 212 runs over the course of 83.2, pretty chaotic overs, to be honest. So for those who don't know, Chris Rushworth injured his hamstring. He came out to bat. He had a runner, which was Ed Barnard. And then as soon as he hit his first ball for a single, Rushy started running. Barnard was sent back and then Rushy was sent back. 
It was absolute carnage, to be honest, in Birmingham this week. But from a Bears perspective, really good to see Will Rhodes back in the runs. 82 invaluable runs for the skipper from 168 balls. Dan Mosley also chipping in with a pretty brief 47 from 97 balls as well, which, to be honest, should give him some confidence. So it was a disappointing first innings for the Bears, but again, the rain kind of played spoil sports. And this is where I come on to my my second question for this particular game, Matt, and that's Lancashire's intent, because I was a little bit confused, to be honest. Right, I'll set the scene. So the Bears have been bowled out for 212 on the third day. The forecast for Saturday is an absolute washout. There's also some rain scheduled for later on, on day three. And Lancashire had a pretty big lead at this point, 115 runs to be exact. And to be honest, myself and everybody in attendance at Edgebaston thought that they were going to come out all guns blazing. And yet they did completely the opposite. They scored 182 from 65 overs, which ultimately killed the game. So given the fact that they, they could realistically with a victory, have been outside favourites or outside contenders for a place back in that top four. Do you think Lanks could have maybe adopted a slightly more positive approach? What do you make of of that second innings display from the Red Rose, Matt? Yes, I do think they could have. They certainly could have adopted more of a positive approach. I can understand why they didn't. You know, they've kind of been slightly burned by that over the course of this season, haven't they? They've had, you know, they've, they've not quite got the their season hasn't really got going, has it? And they suffered a, a tough defeat last time out to Esther, you know, a narrow one. And I think that does, you know, the, the absolute last thing they would have wanted at the point where they are trying to just... Oh, they're not, they're not playing the pride because there's still plenty to be done, but at the point where they are trying to get a faltering season back to where it should be on paper and back to where many people thought they would be at the beginning of the season... The last thing you want is to lose another game. Is to go for a win that potentially isn't really going to make that much difference and risk losing. It's like, you know, if they were still in the hunt for the title or if they definitely needed points to avoid relegation, then I'd be slating them a little bit more and then I'd be saying, well, no, you should have gone for it. You know, there was an opportunity here and you should have gone for it. But they are going to finish in mid-table. They're not going to win it. They're not going to go down. There's... At this point, they're just trying to put, you know, they're just trying to put points on the board, and I can understand why they've opted for a bit more of a conservative approach in taking the draw, because, and I'll big you up a little bit here. Edison is a very, very tough place to go, you know. They, it, and yes, I know the weather forecast probably would have, you know, it might it would have played its part anyway. But again, that's probably a thing, you know, they might have looked at the weather forecast and thought, well, maybe this is ending in a draw anyway, so. Why would we risk throwing it away? And what does remain? You know, if, if a draw is the most likely result, why are we chucking this away, risk losing in these reduced overs anyway? So, yeah, they just didn't want to hand any initiative back to a very good team on a ground that's tough to go to and risk being, you know, put even further behind the eight ball at that point. So, yes, I like to see cricket played positively. I love bad ball. I love it when teams try and seize the upper hand and try and, you know, take the initiative. But at the same time, you sometimes have to play the situation. And I think, and I understand why Lancashire did that. 
And that's fair enough. And to be honest, the conditions at times were difficult to bat in, and the pitch was very slow. It was very, very slow by Edgbaston's standards. So, so maybe that did come into effect when it came into Lancashire's second innings. But I, I don't know. I did expect them to be a little bit more positive and a bit more proactive. But then again, that might have been forcing a result, which, to be honest, just wasn't there because it even rained on day three. So, again. We'll never know. It was only a hypothetical, but yeah, it was just something interesting. As I said, it did come up in in conversation over the course of those three rain-affected days at Edgebaston. But I think of the two teams, Lancashire definitely the happier of the two, in particular the way in which they they salvaged the situation with the likes of Borderson and Bailey. If they would have scored some quick-fire runs, you'd argue they were probably in the better position to win this game. So some learnings for Warwickshire. I will have to say that because that is the third time this season that the Bears have conceded 100-plus runs for the eighth wickets. But, yeah, for some reason, we just struggled to take the eighth wicket. So something to learn heading into the rest of the season. And the other key thing for the Bears from this game, Chris Rushworth, the second-leading wicket-taker in the division, has picked up a hamstring injury. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see what the Bears do on that front. So I think Mir Hamza, yes, he was expensive. Yes, he was rusty. But if you watched him, he gets a lot of movement with the Duke's ball. So again, watch out for him against Middlesex this week. But yeah, let's just say Rushy will be a big loss for the Bears heading into the rest of this potential title charge. And talking of that title charge and talking of the table, let's take a look at the Division 1 table before we end today's episode. So at the top, still in the number one position, are Surrey County Cricket Club on 161 points. In second, just 14 points behind Surrey, really putting on the pressure at this stage of the season are Essex on 147. In third are Hampshire on 132 points. In fourth, but crucially, with a game in hand, are the Bear and Ragged Staff of Warwickshire on 124 points. In fifth are Somerset on 122 points. In sixth, also with a game in hand on the sides above them, are Lancashire on 100 points. In 7th are Nottinghamshire on 89 points. In 8th are Kent on 76 points. In ninth are Middlesex, also with a game in hand, on 65 points. And still in 10th and bottom place of the 1st Division, at the conclusion of the 11th round, are Northamptonshire County Cricket Club on 50 points. So, all of a sudden, the 1st the Division is heating up. And for those who aren't aware, Hampshire play Essex twice. Warwickshire take on Surrey, the Bears have a game in hand, and then Hampshire-Surrey in the very last round of this year's county championships. So there's so much to play for, and that's just at the top, right? The, the battle for the bottom places as well is going to be an absolute chaotic mess, to be honest, because each of those teams will be scrapping, they'll be fighting, they'll be battling away with every single ounce of their being. So yeah, all that I can say, to be honest, is keep an eye out on the first division, There's still so much cricket to be played. We've still got five games left for four of the sides in this division. This is not over yet. There's still many twists and turns and key moments and incredible individual performances still to come. And we will be taking you through every single one of them here on the County Cricket Podcast. But that does bring us to an end to today's episode of TCCP. All that's left for me to say, Matt, is thank you again for coming onto the podcast. Been an absolute saviour there. So... Cheers for that, mate. Do really appreciate that. And obviously, guys, you can go and follow Matt's using the links in the podcast description below. But that is it from us two here at TCCP for today's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, 
Thank you very much for tuning in. As always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.